Well, if you're just visiting us for another reason or you haven't connected with us, we've got a whole bunch of tools. I think most of you have, but, you know, we've got the Facebook page, we've got the group, the church app, uh, web page, call them all. Uh, get connected to these if you haven't. These services are updated constantly. Uh, between Betsy and myself, we try to keep them uh, stocked with sermons and news on what's going on at the church and past sermons. Get plugged in. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, encourage one another and build each other up, and I'm thankful for these tools we have that we can do that. We've extended this series. We're going to go out through uh, at least through part of March, if not through the end of the month. So if perchance you've submitted a Bible question to me, and some of you have, you haven't heard an answer, hold on, stay tuned, don't quit coming to worship on Sunday. Um, it's probably still on the way. This morning, what's our question? Does God have a still small voice? And it is an excellent question. We've got a variety of scriptures. We're going to actually start in uh, the book of Kings, 1 Kings, chapter 2. We're going to be talking about the biblical hero we know as Elijah, the Tishbite. Have you ever heard of the Tishbites before? Almost kind of sounds like a third political party that will never get elected, right? Republicans, Democrats, and Tishbites. But if you remember the story of Elijah, has anybody been through his story recently? God used this prophet at a very interesting time in the history of God's people to oppose King Ahab. Ahab was a ruler of the northern kingdom of Israel, if you remember right. The kingdom had been split at this time. You had the northern kingdom, you had the southern kingdom of Judah, and you can blame Solomon for that little rift. It was kind of uh, his fault for the intermarrying. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. At this point on the timeline, I don't know how it is for you, but for me, I always, uh, for a long time, would, would always get a little bit lost after David and Solomon. It's like, what happens, right, in this weird little era between Solomon and Jesus? I knew a bunch of stuff happened, but I didn't know what. And when you get into your Bible, you see a lot of stuff does happen to God's people, and a lot of it's not very good, right? 1 Kings 16.30 gives us this little bit of inf uh, information about Israel's current ruler. You can turn there with me, and I'm going to try to keep you uh, centered on the Scripture with all the Scripture that uh, Karen has so lovingly added at the last minute for me this week. 140 years after David's rule, and what do we get here? Uh, Ahab is the name of the guy, and the Bible says, And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord. And it continues more than all who were before him. How would you like that said about you in, in the Bible? How'd you like that to be your claim to fame that you did more evil than anyone who was before you? Wow, that's something to really hang your hat on. You know, we like to think of, of some of our current crop of, of politicians as lousy, but you know, when it came to the northern kingdom of Israel at this point in history, we're not just talking about this bad egg overlooking the Sumerian city wall. We're basically talking about the rottenest Humpty Dumpty of them all, right? King Ahab. 1 Kings 16 will actually go on to tell us what happened. Uh, Ahab takes this Phoenician pagan woman as his wife. You've heard her name before. I'm sure her name is Jezebel. Also took her god Baal and goddess Ashtoreth to worship. And together, Ahab and Jezebel are going to promote the worship of these gods in temples within the city of Samaria. 
If you were out for men's fellowship or part of that or came to the midweek Bible study this week, uh, you'll know some of these reasons why uh, the Samaritans were considered bad news. Bad news, especially for the people of God. Several commentators will go on to note that uh, human sacrifices, temple prostitution, these kinds of things were even included in their pagan worship. It's no wonder Ahab gets this reputation, more evil than anyone before him. You ever wonder why people don't often, when they have a baby, oh, I'm going with the name Adolf, right? You don't hear that for a newborn baby boy. How often do you hear the name Jezebel for a baby girl? There's a reason. There's a reason, and here it is. Uh, Jezebel ordered the people to go and, and uh, quote, stamp out every remnant of worship to Yahweh. That's a commentator's quote. But that's what they were trying to do. Doesn't work too well when you're supposed to be over God's people, right? 1 Kings 16.33 actually goes on to say Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. But in the middle of all this pagan confusion from the top down, and this is supposed to be in the area near the area that was called the Promised Land, God calls Elijah. Elijah the Tishbite in 1 Kings 17, 1, and look there with me. His name actually meant, my God is the Lord. That was what Elijah meant. And at a very key moment when you can imagine a very noisy world surrounding Elijah, surrounding God's people, the Lord is going to choose to speak in a very special way to Elijah, in a voice, you might say, beyond the quiet like to talk for just a minute. There's a, there's a very real emotion that uh, cripples thousands of us, thousands of Christians. That is called depression. Depression. Stories told of a group of psychiatry students sitting in their college class. Their professor uh, began a discussion. Professor said, what we're going to talk about today are the emotional extremes that many people go through. For example, he turned to one student and said, what's the opposite of joy? Sadness, the student answered. And what's the opposite of depression? The professor asked a young lady in class. Elation, the student replied. Turning to a young man from Texas, the professor asked, the opposite of woe? Well now, the Texan replied, I suppose the opposite of woe would be giddy up. <laughs> Thanks for laughing, I'll, I'll pay you later. Preacher, we're warning you. Well, let's digress to the young lady's uh, response in that classroom, the opposite of elation. Depression. Have you ever fought depression? Have you ever known anyone who struggled with depression? According to psychiatrists Frank Minrith and Paul Meyer, the majority of Americans, the majority, actually suffer from some kind of serious clinical depression at some point in their lives. It's the norm, not the exception. And what's more, many folks will never get help for it, but they'll fight the battle on their own. One famous clinic notes that in an average week, 50,000 people will visit for therapy. 75% of these clients either have clinical depression or some sort of anxiety disorder. So depression is a very common thing for us. And what's interesting is we find in the first few verses of 1 Kings 19, Elijah's hit this as well. He's suffering a kind of depression. 
And you know, it's no wonder when you see the threat that's come up against him, when you consider all that he's been through. You know, scripture kind of keeps moving through its story. It doesn't really stop and, and uh, let you catch your breath much. But Elijah's initially flying quite high in the Lord in, in this story. If you look at 1 Kings chapter 17 in your pew Bibles, where that starts. By God's command here, Elijah, what happens? He predicts a drought upon Ahab and Israel. Verse 1. He goes into hiding. While in hiding, and I've got this uh, text up here on the screen behind me. Elijah's fed by ravens. He goes to a neighboring country. God actually will provide a widow with a never-ending supply of flour and oil for food. That's God uh, providing, if I've ever read it right. We see Elijah's eyes are on the skies. He seems to be uh, flying high in the Lord. He's doing well, even when he's in compromised situations. Later on, one of my favorite parts of the entire Old Testament, uh, Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 18, verses uh, 17 to 40. We've got 38 through 40 up here. What happens here? This is at Mount Carmel. And Elijah's facing off uh, against those prophets of Baal brought in by Jezebel. If you don't remember the story, Elijah calls upon God. God sends fire down to prove that he is the Almighty in verse 40. The prophets of Baal are seized and slaughtered by Elijah uh, while their God is. And I just love what uh, Elijah says to taunt them. What does he say? Amusing. Uh, maybe your God is relieving himself. Yes, that's right. That's in the Bible, and I love it. Maybe your God is going to the bathroom. Or he is on a journey. Perhaps he's asleep and must be wakened. Elijah's words here are nothing uh, but, but brilliant. I think he's probably one of God's primary evangelists of sarcasm. But what happens by chapter 19? Where does he go? One thing's for sure from the biblical text, Elijah's world has been an awfully loud one for quite some time now. And so by the time he gets this message, by the time verses 2 to 4, he gets the message from Jezebel that his life's in danger. He likely can't even hear himself think, to, he, to say nothing of hearing Jehovah speak. One commentator notes, as was true for Elijah, it's true for us. When we focus on the noise, on the tumult of life in this world, what do we do? We tend to take our eyes off the Lord. What does Elijah do by verse 4? Well, we notice that he starts feeling sorry for himself. He Gets huddled down under this tree, this uh, broom tree, Scripture says, just like we do. The world's been spinning around him. He's not paying attention to the, the end goal where God wants him to be what God wants him to do. We do that. You know, you don't necessarily have to have uh, some Jezebel putting you on the run to get there, although that'll do it. But maybe it's some other kind of noise of this world that puts you on the run. Maybe it's the 24-hour media. Maybe you get sick and tired of hearing all the, the junk reporting or the godless agenda can really get at you when you immerse yourself in it constantly. We live in a world that's increasingly this way. Maybe it's the noise of the broken family unit. Maybe it's your house, maybe it's your neighbor's house, someone that you love, someone you know. Maybe it's the noise of perceived failures or mistakes or bad choices or your own disappointments from your past. 
These things cloud you, choke out your faith, make you afraid, put you on the run. Does this sound familiar? This is exactly what happens to all of us. The Bible says Elijah was a man just like us, right? Maybe it's the noise of a doctor's prognosis. Boy, can't that make you forget that God's still in it. God. Sure it can. Maybe it's the noise of a natural disaster. We hear what's been uh, going on over in Australia. Same thing that always seems to be going on in California, right? Every time you turn on the TV, California's burning again. It's on fire. Might fill you with doubt about the sovereignty of the Lord, right? Why does he allow this? It's difficult to remember that God remains bigger than all of this stuff, right? Because we see all this stuff. We're bombarded constantly. On the other hand, it's simply amazing what God will do for those of us who love and trust him and keep our eyes on him. Whoa, I almost lost my coffee there. One author tells of a 1999 Duke University study in which 4,000 older adults were interviewed in regards to faith and overall quality of life. I thought this was interesting. One of the conclusions of the story was the following. Attendance at a house of worship, believe it or not, is related to lower rates of depression and anxiety. You can maybe argue details of this. Well, they're getting out. They're being social. But the point is, coming to this place does you good. It's good for your body. It's not just good for your spiritual side. It's good for all of you. Yes, church is us. We're the church, not this building. But what do we listen to when we're in this place? For a little while, maybe we lose the noise, the bickering of the world, the noise within us, the hatred, the, the constant, uh, that vitriol of the world that we're just constantly plagued with day in and day out. We get to hear from God. We get to set aside some time. The trouble is we're not always listening for his voice, are we? And we're all guilty. Even ministers. Over 1,700 ministers, those in the pastoral ministry, will leave ministry every month. 1,700. Those are frightening statistics. Well, at some point, I would venture to say some of these guys forget who's really at work, right? Who's really at work. God's always at work, and we have to count on that, even or especially if we're sitting under Elijah's broom tree. If any of you are history buffs, there's a story told about uh, that time in history. I can't imagine being there. We had our allied troops. They were making our way across Europe to cross Hitler's forces. And it seems this group came across a building. It was all bombed out and destroyed. Had an inscription scrawled on a basement wall they came across. It said, I believe in the sun even when it's not shining. I believe in love even when it is not shown. And I believe in God even when he doesn't speak. Those are powerful words to hear if you'd be in circumstances like that. My wife and I have a magnet hanging on our refrigerator at the house that says, God at work used to be on the dishwasher, but we moved it. I'm not sure why that was important, but I thought I'd mention it. It is now on the fridge. You might note that. But this is a very powerful three-word message to hang around your house. Wherever you see it, wherever you look at it, when the going gets tough, you can take a look at that. If it's on your fridge, maybe your first thought's, I'm hungry, so maybe you do need to put it back on the, on the yeah, don't eat your problems away. Maybe you need to put it back on your dishwasher. I don't know. But God is always providing, and God is always in control, no matter our circumstances. 
God always provided. He was in control in Europe during the Second World War. And God was providing and still in control for Elijah. Let's look ahead here in the text. We're going to get to the answer to that question this morning, I promise. In the midst of Elijah's confusion, the Bible says this, verse 5. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. Verse 8. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. We'll stop again with verse 8 here in 1 Kings 19. You know, God could have spoken to Elijah in other ways, right? Just to give him a reminder, hey, I'm still here. Don't forget about me. Besides the angel. I mean, God could have really sent Elijah the decibels. Lord Almighty, he spoke everything into being with, with, with just a few words, right? God could have struck down Jezebel in cold blood. God could have destroyed the entire kingdom of, ah of uh, Ahab with a single word, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah style. And either of these responses probably would have lifted Elijah out of his rut, although they might have been the equivalent of heaven's sonic booms. But what did God do instead? How did he provide for him instead? How did he send him a reminder? Not in those ways. As David put it, he led him beside still waters, didn't he? Look, look in the text again, verses 5 to 8. What do? God gave him rest, peace and quiet, R and R. Have you ever noticed what a little peace and quiet, just a little rest and relaxation, especially if you've got small kids, can do for your mood? You ever notice? It's amazing. Author Anne Lamott writes, almost everything will work again if you unplug it for a few minutes, including you. Sometimes we just need to take a little rest, right? Sometimes if I'm working late into the week, if I've got a sermon I'm, I'm trying to get done and I'm hitting a brick wall 15 times with my words happens. I'm looking down and realizing I've got a complete literary mess on my hands. There's no way people are even going to stay away, awake for it, let alone get what I'm saying. You know what I do? You know how I fix my sermon? I call Henry down at Vestenberg and I steal one of his. No. Take a break. My wife's even made me take a break before. And you know when your wife tells you to take a break, you better listen. God starts with meeting Elijah's physical needs and giving him a break. Then he gets him back up on his feet. But what does he do? He doesn't stop there, does he? He doesn't stop there. Forty days after Elijah leaves the wilderness, he ends up at Horeb. God begins tending to his spiritual needs, spiritual needs as well. First he gives him that physical. And then he uh, leans in and does a little bit more. Look with me here, verses 9 to 18. This is where we're finally going to get the answer to our big Bible question this morning. The Lord is going to come personally speaking to Elijah, and what's he going to say? Well, he's going to encourage this weary traveler to get his mind off the physical details of his journey and back onto God, right? Oh, so subtly. And I love the way he does this. Skim through this text with me. I won't read through the whole thing out loud, but just look here, verses 9 forward. The Lord first tells Elijah to stand on the mountain as the Lord passes by. This is in uh, verse 11. 
Then what does God do? He allows this great wind to pass, an earthquake, and then a fire. Elijah's going to see, he's going to hear, he's going to feel all of these physical elements. Yet find no presence of the Lord in him. Okay? That's interesting. Then he realizes what? The voice of the Lord can be heard how? Verse 12. Look at verse 12 with me. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. The Hebrew, which is translated low whisper in our text in verse 12 of the ESV, literally means a thin, silent voice. Maybe as quiet as you can possibly get. As quiet as you can possibly get. Hearing a pin drop. Verse 13 goes on to describe it a little bit more, but why? This is God we're talking about. I have a feeling for Elijah, it was just so difficult to be still. It was just so difficult to be still. He was probably on to the next thing. Kind of like I'm always on to the next thing. It's so difficult to be still. Do you deal with that? I have a wife. I have three kids. I have a couple of TVs, a couple of cell phones, two dogs, and about 47 cats. That'll be my legacy. Preacher with all these cats. But I struggle a little bit with listening to the voice of God at times. I'll be honest, I do. And would a sudden scream from heaven really help my situation much with all that noise? Probably not. If God were to speak to me in this way, would I even notice it? Would I recognize it? The psalmist writes, we're commanded to be still and know he is God. The world-famous Mother Teresa once said, in the silence of the heart, God speaks. I mean, the actual Mother Teresa, Cody, not, not your mom. Although she might have said that once. The Bible also says this, you know, our ways are not his ways, and that's hard to keep in mind, but it only makes sense when you consider the way God speaks to Elijah at his absolute lowest. We've got to get past all the noise. Got to get beyond the noise. Get further than the noise. All the noise around me to give God a hearing. It's what Elijah had to do. We already know the heavy wing, winds are going to blow around us in this world, right? We already feel the earth quaking from time to time. Maybe not so much in Michigan. But these earthquakes, these fires, they're going to break out in this world. They're going to be reported on. See which uh, station or, or feed on your phone gets it the fastest, right? But this still small voice, it comes to Elijah in complete silence because that's God's way. It's not our way. Our way is who's the loudest? Who shows the most brute force? It's not God's way. I know someone who says, I don't like silence in my house. I, I like to have the TV on in the background at the very least, no matter what I'm doing. Do you feel that? Sometimes. Noise can be a source of comfort in our lives because we're so used to it we don't have it it's like something's wrong right but we need silence in our lives we need silence from time to time this is the moment in which elijah heard from god it's the moment in which he heard from god you know we don't know how long those noisy moments were the bible doesn't tell us we don't know the length of that earthquake or any of those grand effects what we do know is by verse 15 of the text, if you look on with me. 
After Elijah hears from God, after he comes to that point where God reaches out in that still small voice, Elijah's ready to get back on his feet again. He gets going. He's confident. He's no longer afraid of what the world can do to him with all its noise. and He's no longer overwhelmed by feelings of being alone. He begins to come out of this mental state. For Elijah hears the voice, and what's more, Elijah begins listening to the voice. In verse 16, we've got it up here. Uh, God will even begin accompanying Elijah's journey with a companion and a successor named Elisha. And see, this is what listening to and for and continuing in God can do. Because he takes care of me and you. Most likely in the way we least expect when we least expect. But what's frightening is, do you think it's ever possible that God, who speaks to us through his word, through his spirit, right, can still talk to us in a still small voice the way he did to Elijah, and we decide not to listen? Do you think that ever happens? Well, I'm sure it happens to a few other people in Scripture. Turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 6. I've got this on the screen behind me as well. We're going to go to another character earlier. We started talking earlier about this guy. This is the earlier point on the biblical timeline where David's son Solomon has taken 700 wives and 300 concubines. Now, I want you to think about that with me. The very idea of this. Guys, does that sound like a smart idea? I think two or three of you just passed out. Someone has said, they say Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived, and then he went and married a thousand women. How smart is that? Think of all those anniversaries, guys. Think of all those I'm mad at you presents. Goodness. So there's a reason he lost the kingdom. Look at verse 6 with me. We'll read through verse 10. It says, So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Well, what made him do that? Hmm, I wonder. Then Solomon built a high place uh, for Chemish, the abomination of Moab. These are all these other gods that all his uh, pagan wives followed. And for Moloch, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. Wow. Verse 9. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Now look with me there. It appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. So what happens? Well, we know. We know from the history. The kingdom is divided up from David's dynasty. They lose it. 140 years passing. Who do we see end up on that throne? That's right. Good old Ahab and Jezebel. I wonder how that happened. Do you think that all this could have been avoided? for Elijah, for the kingdom, for Israel, for God's people. If Solomon had listened, the Bible tells us God came to him, told him. If only Solomon had listened to that same voice who surely came to him a century earlier, probably at his lowest point. If Solomon hadn't ignored that intimate voice, wife after wife 
after wife, idol after idol after idol. Before he got to the point where he had, you know, a thousand idol shrines built or whatever. Hmm. God could have kept Solomon from uh, throwing the entire Judaic kingdom into idolatry by force. Sure, he could have. He could have rained down from heaven a burning bush. He could have took out a wife for several hundred. God could have even allowed Solomon to be struck down and suffer like Job. All this was within God's capability. You know, when God wants to shout at us, he can do that. He can do that. C.S. Lewis thought of pain as, quote, God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Sometimes we experience life in that way. But how often instead, consider this, how often instead does Scripture in this world of free will describe God's call to his people like this? Prophet Zechariah chapter 1, verse 3, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, and I will return to you. The ball's in your court. I call out to you, but you return to me. Hosea. And I purposely picked some scriptures that uh, may not have been fresh in your mind. Hosea 12, verse 6. So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. It seems the ball is in our court. It seems the ball is in our court. You know, ever since Adam walked with the Lord in the garden, God has willed that we would do the same, that we would come to the garden, as we sang about earlier. He desires us for a relationship. He's not going to force us. He's not ever going to force anyone to get past this loud world and come to him. One thing we pray on so many Lord's Day is, Lord, clear my mind. Get it free of distraction. All of that which disturbs me from the outside world so that I can hear your will. And I encourage you to take this prayer on your daily walk. I know there's things in this world that we have to take care of. There's business in this world. But I encourage you to pray to the Lord. Lord, clear my mind. Help me focus. Help me listen to you. Because we need his help. There's an old preacher's story about the days before widespread refrigeration. This is the days when ice blocks could be distributed to people's homes to keep their food cool. Does this ring a bell for anybody? Anyhow, in those times, there were, there were large warehouses in which ice was stored. It could be packed in hay, perhaps. And one of the men working in one of the warehouses had a very nice pocket watch. One day, it fell out of his pocket and ended up lost in the hay. As you could imagine, these were loud, noisy places, right? Well, the worker, several of his co-workers, gave nearly an hour looking for this watch. They never could find it. And they eventually gave up and went to lunch. But when they returned, a young man stood at the door holding up what had been lost. It seemed he'd found the pocket watch. How in the world did you happen to find it, said the owner, delighted. Easy, came the reply. I just... Waited until everyone left for lunch. It was quiet. I laid down in the hay and I listened for the ticking. The sound led me right to it. And this is exactly how it is when we get quiet before God. It's exactly how it is, folks. Does he have a still small voice? Absolutely. 
And if we listen, we'll hear it. But we have to listen closely, and we have to listen for it every day. Every day. Not just a couple hours on a Sunday morning or maybe an hour or two during the week. We have to listen every day. Why do you think we're told to pray continually without ceasing? Not so we can do a whole lot of talking, but so we can do a whole lot of listening. No matter the circumstances surrounding you, this is the good news. And I think this is why the word tells us this at Elijah's lowest point. Things couldn't get any worse for him. That's when God's not going to leave you, especially in those moments. And that's a promise. But those times that you can't hear someone whisper, what do you do? If you're in a conversation, you can't hear someone. Do you allow more space? Do you say, well, I'm going to go in the other room since I can't hear you. Or do you get as close as you comfortably can to hear what's being said by that individual? Like Elijah and like the disciples, we need to stay willing to come to this desolate place. Mark 6.31, come by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while to listen for the voice of the Lord. It's an awfully loud world. He comes to us in a still small voice. And I encourage you to look for him, to seek him in the quiet. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord, I thank you that you are always there for us. Lord, your word uh, gives us so many examples of your people. So many of the ways in which they dealt with emotions just like we do today in all of the very same ways. We look at Elijah, we look at your son, we, we see that we have a need to come to you, to listen to you, to make this a constant spiritual discipline. Lord, we can tune out every day. We can put in uh, earplugs. We can have the TV going. We can go to a, a loud, noisy social endeavor or another. We can stay there. Keep ourselves immersed in noise. But you come to us in the quiet. You walk with us and you, and you talk with us. Lord, you tell us that we're yours. Help us, Lord. Encourage us to want to come to you just as we are. Spend time listening to what you would have to say. Not just in the big decisions, Lord. Not just when we're uh, considering something that we think is life-changing or some great idea we have, but every day through all we would say and do. I pray, Lord, that we would be people who are contemplative, that we would be people who are spiritual first, not people who 
seek the ways of the world, chase after the flesh, but people that worship you. Your word says in spirit and in truth. And I pray that you would guide us there and keep us there. Hold us fast. Lord, it seems every, every day there's another invention, there's another gadget, or, or there's another uh, uh, phone or a device which takes our attention, holds us captive. Lord, I pray that you would help us, encourage us, convict us to get away, talk to you, trust you, we love you so much, Lord. We're so thankful for that sacrifice that was made upon the cross. And one day, Lord, we, we will be with you, all of what we are. We'll get to be with you for an eternity, praising you as we were made to be. Help guide us home and help us be with you in a way that will Encourage others to want to be with you as well. Lord, above all, we thank you for keeping us under your mercy every day and for coming to us in such a still, small way. It is in the name of Jesus I pray these things. Amen. I'm going to end with a song that uh, seems fairly appropriate. Word of God, speak. There's so many different things, so many different people and guides that we can listen to. Everybody in some small way follows something or someone, right, in this world. It's so easy for us to replace Yahweh with your way. If you've got a decision that you'd like to make this morning, uh, maybe it's to rededicate yourself to the Lord. Maybe it's to come forward and go into that water. Cody talked about it earlier. Come up a new creation. Life-changing, eternity-changing. If today is your day to do that, we invite you to come forward. Or if you have another public decision you'd like to make, if you're already an immersed be uh, believer, you'd like to place your membership here at Ferris Church of Christ, we invite you to do that as well as we stand and sing, listening to the Word of God, Word of God speak.